Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, I think this is going to be our third week in these words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We are in no hurry to get through this. We are in a very unhurried way, slowing down and just each week moving a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. Uh, Last week, in fact, I didn't do much other than lead us through Electio Divina of these words from the Apostle Paul. But by way of reminder, we're going to hopefully, I don't know how far we're going to make it in, um, but we're going to make it through at least, I'm hoping, two movements in one of Paul's opening lines in verse 16. But just to remind us about the context in which Paul is writing. Um, I said this a couple weeks ago, but the letter to the church in Ephesus is not being written by an apostle who is in an ivory tower, uh, but rather he is in a prison dungeon in Ephesus. And it's not also being, well, he's not in Ephesus, but um, uh, it's being written by an apostle, not in an ivory tower, but in prison. But it is being written to a church community in Ephesus. But it's a church community that doesn't find itself either in a place of comfort, in a place of ease. In fact, at the moment in which Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, they're beginning to bump up against what will become one of the predominant issues for the early church in the opening centuries of its life. Ephesus is uh, the jewel of Asia Minor. It is one of the pride and joys of the empire. It's a major trading route. It was known for its libraries, its architecture, and its art. It was a place where, if you were anyone, you spent time in Ephesus. But the church in Ephesus was beginning to bump up against the fact that of all the things they would worship, Caesar and the empire was not one of them. And this would become one of the major issues for the early church, that their allegiance was not first and foremost to Rome or to Caesar, but it was to the kingdom of heaven and its God. And people were beginning to notice the church in Ephesus is finding a way to live out a particular truth and reality in the midst of a pluralist society, to live a creative new life in the context of old repressive ways. And in this context, Paul sends a letter. And again, what does he give them? He doesn't give them strategy, doesn't give them a new way of doing things. Rather, he gives them a prayer and a way. And this is where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3 is in what we've called a humble prayer. And so the first movement I want to invite us to pay attention to this morning is Paul's, uh, Paul's phrase, according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Maybe your translation says unlimited resources. And here, one of the things that I want us to pay attention to is that for you and for me, our default way of oftentimes looking at life is not typically one of abundance, but one of scarcity. You and I are much more prone to see what is missing than what is present, what is lacking than what has been given. And yet, the story of God, going all the way back to Genesis, begins with a liturgy of abundance. 
Genesis chapter one is a song of praise for God's generosity. It tells how well the created world is ordered. It keeps saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Later on, the people of God, Israel, will celebrate God's abundance in their poetry. Psalm 104, which is the longest creation poem in the Psalter. It's a commentary on Genesis 1, and the psalmist looks at creation, and he names it all. The heavens and the earth, the waters and the springs and the streams and the trees and the birds and the goat and the wine and the oil and the bread and the people and the lions. And this goes on for 23 verses. And at the end, at verse 24, the psalmist expresses awe and praise for God's creation. And the psalm ends picturing God as a great respirator. It says, if you give your breath, the world will live. And if you ever stop breathing, the world will die. Why does this matter? Why does Paul say, according to the riches of his unlimited resources, Because again, friends, in a world that is marked by scarcity, with lives and stories marked by scarcity, the reason why some of us, myself included, only see scarcity is because we have experienced scarcity at levels that we're just beginning to process. So God enters in with a different story, but not just a different story, the story. Because the story of God and the story of Jesus has been and, ha- and will always be the story of the world. In his introduction to the Gospel of Matthew in the message, Eugene writes this. He says, the story of Jesus does not begin with Jesus. God has been at work for a long time. Salvation, which is the main business of Jesus, is an old business. Jesus is coming together in final form of themes and energies and movements that have been set in motion before the foundation of the world. Matthew tells the story in such a way that not only is everything previous to us completed in Jesus, but we are completed in Jesus. Every day we wake up in the middle of something that is already going on, that has been going on for a long time, genealogy and geology, history and culture, the cosmos. God. We are neither accidental nor incidental in the story. We get orientation, briefing, background, and reassurance. The story of God is still the story of the world. In fact, one of the reasons why we are using the Beatitudes as the the litany for the season of ordinary time is because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, the Beatitudes reveal the new reality of what God is doing. The Beatitudes are not for God something aspirational. The Beatitudes for God are not something transactional. Well, if you do this, you'll get this. But rather, as Bonhoeffer points out, as Jesus stands up, He's looking at women and men and children he has preached to and he is healed and he is fed. And he's going, blessed are the meek, poor in spirit, the hungry, the persecuted, those who are mourning. It's not theoretical to Jesus. It's flesh and blood. It's women and men that in desperation in the midst of scarcity, have said yes to the inbreaking, abundant kingdom that is the kingdom of God. 
that is like nothing they expected, but they were only beginning to scratch the surface too. It reveals the new reality in the story of what God is doing, not what will be. In fact, the whole entire Sermon on the Mount is a moment of revealing. It's apocalyptic in its own way. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on the reality of God's kingdom. And in doing so, he's also pulling back the the curtain on a certain number of myths, the myths of redemptive violence, that the way in which to gain power is through violence, through bloodshed. He's pulling back on revealing the myth of climbing the social ladder. He's revealing the myth that the good life is defined by comfort and ease. But that God is doing something new. That God desires for that new thing to be brought into the world. And in God's manifold wisdom, he doesn't wrangle and he doesn't force which is why we gather every week to pray the prayer of your kingdom come and your will be done in Charlottesville, in Albemarle County, in Nelson, in Green, in Virginia, in the world. Your kingdom come. But we don't just pray that, but then what? The flow of our liturgy is God gathers, but then God sends that we might go out to bear witness and to work alongside God to bring about the vision of God's kingdom here on earth. After all, how does Jesus summarize the whole of Matthew chapter five? And remember, Matthew five, it's a banging of a chapter in the gospels. You've got the Beatitudes. You've got Jesus's words about salt and light. Jesus's words about lust and about anger, about honesty in our speech, about loving our neighbors. And at the end of it, I don't know if you remember, at the very end, the very last verse of Matthew 5, Jesus summarizes his teaching up to this point by saying this. I love how Eugene translates it. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is, it's time to grow up into who you are in me. So all of this, Jesus summarizes by saying, it's time for you to grow up. And don't hear this as chiding. It's an invitation He says, your kingdom subjects, it's time to live like it, not later, but now. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. It's the whole entire words of Paul that Kristen read a few minutes ago. It is an ethic of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness. It's the invitation that any vision and imagination we have for life runs first and foremost through Jesus. Jesus summarizes the whole of his teaching by saying, in a word, it's time to grow up into who you are in me. It's the reason why Dallas once said that the greatest issue facing the world today, the greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, will become students, will become apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. 
this isn't in my notes, I'm going to risk this. And it means we're not going to get to the second movement, and that's okay. Coming off of the heels of this past week, weeks, months, years, and moving into the next years, here's one of the promises I can make as your pastor. I will never tell you how to vote. I will never tell you what to vote for and what not to vote for. In fact, my goal is to be as ambiguous as possible and keep you guessing. Friends, not at this church, but at previous churches, I have had people leave because they thought I was too conservative and people who left because I thought it was too liberal. My call in this vocation, in this space, is not to call us into a specific side of the aisle. My call and my vocation is to every single week get up, and I said this in the letter that I wrote to the church when I accepted the job a year and a half ago, is to remind you week upon week that you are deeply, deeply loved by God. And that his kingdom has been made available to you. And to say yes to it is both beautiful and dangerous. But I believe in my bones. Friends, it's the reason why I'm still here. And I'm not talking about all souls, I'm talking about the church. I have enough stories that one alone would make anyone go, what, what, <laughs> pop that off. <laughs> yeah, half of you didn't know that came off, did you? <laughs> yeah, there you go. My wife's going, oh, Spiller. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> but I'm still here. And I will be here next Sunday. I'll be here the Sunday after. In this place and at this table. And at the tables with you throughout the week. Because in my bones, y'all, I believe that the story of God is still the story of the world. And that for those of us who are ready, and some of us are not, and we're not going anywhere. So whenever you're ready, for those of us who will say yes to the availability of that kingdom, and for those of us that will apprentice ourselves to the one who knows what it is to proclaim these words, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and he doesn't get a book deal, he doesn't get a platform, he doesn't get a good life, it ends in death, but that death ends in resurrection. Who is not seated on a throne in some far off distance, waiting for everything to play out, but is here with us, in us, around us. And who, if we want, and we're willing to say yes to, will show us in the midst of this world as bad as it feels, and in the midst of what the world will feel like in moments when it feels worse and it feels better, when the world feels like it's falling apart and when it finally feels like we make it, in both of those spaces is willing to say, I will show you what it is to live. What it means to act out of a hidden life with God. 
for activism and action to be driven by deep contemplation. This is the deep gift of so many women and men in the civil rights movement. In fact, I was gonna do this next week, I'm still going to Howard Thurman, who was a long-time pastor and mentor to Martin Luther King, has two books, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is his call to the church and the people of God to speak out against injustice and to not only speak out against it, but to work against it, to march and to fight. But then he also has the Meditations of the Heart, which is one of the most contemplative, mystic books I've ever read. And for Howard, and for so many others in the civil rights movement, their action, their speaking came out of a life with God. Because if we try to act out of anything else, our own energy, our own power, our own stamina, I don't know about y'all, I fizzle out quick and quicker now than I have in the past. But it is from a deep well from which we draw. Because it is not our words we speak. It is not our actions we act. But because we have apprenticed ourselves to Jesus, we are little by little becoming the kind of people who do just that. Who do what Jesus did and say what Jesus said. We, as the people and friends of God, are called to become the kinds of people whose actions flow out of a life with God and a life for God. And that is all I have time for this week. You are loved, and you are held. And the invitation to each and every one of us, every single moment of every single day, is come to me, all you who are heavy laden, who are burdened, tired of religion. I will give you rest. But he doesn't stop there because the same one who says that says, stick with me, follow me. Apprentice yourself to me. Take upon you my teaching, my way of life, my rhythms of grace, and I'll show you how to live. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.